welcome everyone to Breaking Out of the Silos. I'm here with an illustrious panel. I'm going to briefly introduce you and then we're going to get straight on with the discussion. The aim of today is to be as practical as possible, to give you all tips and ideas on how to repackage your words, your talents, who you are for this uh, changing landscape. So to my far right, um, Valerie Koo, a former accountant, journalist, and author. She's also the founder of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is, has a community of over 30,000 writers online and in person nationally. She's the author of Power Stories, which she says has opened many doors for her career. She's a huge champion of her successful writing graduates from the Australian Writers' Centre and is also besotted with three dogs and two cats. In the centre, David Laser, who kindly stepped in at the last minute for this panel. Um, he's a, a Walkley winning journalist for his story, Who's Afraid of Alan Jones, which was published in The Good Weekend. Um, he's worked for The Australian, The Sydney Morning Herald, Bulletin, Australian Women's Weekly, the list goes on. Uh, he's also the author of six books, and he, in this year, his memoir, To Begin to Know, Walking in the Shadows of My Father, was published and it's available at the bookstore. And closest to me, Amanda Gearing, another award-winning journalist who established and headed the Courier Mail's Toowoomba Bureau from 1997 to 2007. She's tutored in journalism and she's currently doing a PhD in the use of social media, the web and reporter and media outlet collaboration. And she's also a book writer and a, another Walkley Award winner for her radio documentary and currently lives in Brisbane. Okay, so I'm going to throw this open to all of you. Um, what advice would you give our um, audience on one way to expand what they do as journalists and step out into this new media landscape? Valerie, do you want to start? I think that there are actually a lot of opportunities available to freelancers these days and many more opportunities than ever before. So if I had to pick one piece of advice, I would say go talk to people, as in go talk to somebody who's doing, who's already in an area in, that, that you're interested in, who's already doing something that's out of the silo, whether that is um, whether that's branded journalism or speaking or um, investigative stuff or whatever, go and seek those people out in a forum like, like this or online. There's various, there's various avenues where you can connect with people. And I think what's really important is to keep an open mind so that when you talk to them, you're, 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 able, to see, you're able to see other opportunities. I think we often get really stuck in the traditional concept and paradigm of journalism, but when we start talking to various people and opening our minds up to other revenue streams and other opportunities, that's when things just start clicking and you see other, other ways that you can get work. So that, I guess, so that would be my one. Okay. David? Uh, I, I mentioned to my daughter yesterday when I was coming onto this panel and about to talk about how I launched myself out of the silo and into the new media, and she just fell about laughing. Um, and she thought that was extremely amusing because um, she sees me as a troglodyte. Right. And, uh, and probably I am. You know, when, I, when I got my Twitter account, I, I'd always thought, well, you know, okay, I wonder, we'd always thought for years I, when I was growing up, what do people really think? And then we got the Twitter sphere. Yeah. And we kind of 
found out that people really think and it's quite alarming actually. <laughs> and so I, my Twitter account is Twitter ergo sum, I tweet therefore I am. And I've only used it about five times. So I actually am the cop the troglodyte. But in terms of, I mean, I would pick up on what Valerie is saying in terms of um, speaking to people who are doing what they love. And I would go maybe one step further or do a dog leg there. One of the most impressive people I ever met as a journalist was a woman called Fran Peavy. And she started a movement called Heart Politics. And the basis of Heart Politics is that there is a million places where we can put ourselves right. in terms of political action. And many of us don't know where to start. Is it the Middle East? Is it the Ukraine? Is it Cambodia? Is it, is it at home? Is it Indigenous Australia? And her, her thing is, whatever it is that moves you, whatever it is that you are passionate about, that is how you can respond politically. And I would say the same with storytelling, with journalism, whatever form it is. That you need to find whatever it is that you're passionate about. And whether that's the latest recipe using guava fruit or whether it's music or whether it's um, um, race relations in Australia, then become an expert in your field and be really passionate. Okay, I think that's really important, finding your niche or becoming an expert. Amanda, what would you say? I agree heartily with David. Uh, I would bring that down uh, to, the person, to the person and, and have a think of, and urge people to think about what, what really makes me go. And for me, it's the story. And so from moving out of newspapers where my job was to fill newspaper-shaped holes with photos and the variety was either vertical or horizontal and some words to go with it and everything was squished into this paradigm. Now I, now I get the story and I go, where is this story for? So the story might scream at me, I'm a radio story, in which case I make a radio story, a radio documentary or, um, or whatever it is, and then use my press contacts to write some press copy to promote that radio story. But that radio story then, um, in this case it was a story about a girl who had been sacrificed by her mother and it was picked up by a film director in Adelaide who wants me now to write a feature film script. I've never written a feature film script but I've gone, hey, let's give it a red hot go. And so he's putting up $12 million to, to make it. So rather than go, I'm a newspaper journalist, leave me alone, I have to open my mind to um, what is the story here and in what format. The same thing happened with reporting a natural disaster. I did the first of all, the newspaper copy, but at the same time I took a little handheld broadcast quality recorder and recorded all those interviews, not knowing where they would go. In the end, the State Library collected all of my data. It's the largest database that's, that State Library of Queensland has ever collected. It's called the Amanda Gearing Collection. So all of, those, cool. all of those recordings are now there. Some of those people have already died, but I did it for the children who were orphaned by that event. So they can now log into the library and they can actually hear the voices of the people who tried to save their parents or their friends. Over, over years to come. So whilst I was doing journalism, 
the library thought, she's doing oral histories, and my goodness, she's got a huge collection of them. I also wrote uh, those stories into a book, which is on sale out here. I also used some of those stories to make a radio documentary. So with the same stuff, I've repackaged um, in all sorts of different ways, some of which I didn't expect at all at the beginning. So if you, haven't, if you are a newspaper journalist and you have no audio skills, I would say have a go at skilling up. If you've got no video skills, skill up so that whatever s the story asks you to do with it, you can do those things with it. The other thing is look at a global audience. Australia's media audience is far too small um, for us to, to do this stuff. So the story I, some of the stories I do, I'm looking at a global audience and finding it. So I think that's great. The idea of upskilling is also something that I would really endorse. And to be, I mean, the thing is, when you work in a full-time job, you're often paid to go and do trainings. You know, they, you know, your company sends you off. And But freelancers tend not to do that. They tend to, as Valerie was saying, sort of start becoming a bit blinkered. So just picking up on the idea of upskilling, what about new technologies, Valerie? How important is it for journalists to embrace social media? Can you be a journalist now <laughs> and not be on social media? Well, of course you can, but I suppose once upon a time people said that they didn't want a telephone or they didn't want a computer. So, yes, you can. But uh, the reality is that social media is around. And even just, even if you don't, want to get addicted to it or don't want to be in it too much, at least having an understanding of it and being on it so you can see what's happening, I think is pretty important, yeah. And what, which, um, which ones would you suggest? I think you actually need to go with the one that you're going to do the most, rather okay. than say you have to do Twitter or you do LinkedIn or whatever. Just try them out, see which one is actually most appealing to you, and then you'll start getting it and you'll start interacting and you'll actually start seeing how how... Uh, how many opportunities can occur as a result of being on social media. And then maybe once you try one platform, you might be tempted to go onto another one. But I think, yeah, just pick the one that's going to resonate most with you. Now, picking up on that, Amanda, you've, your research for your PhD is interviewing Walkley journalists. Um, just maybe share a tiny little bit about um, their, the Walkley journalists you interviewed and their relationship with social media. Yes. Well... In, in approaching last year's Walkley Award finalists for these interviews, my, my best guess was they're probably pretty hotly connected in the social media, web communication, and they've got it all together. Um, the reality was absolutely the opposite. Of the 16 that I interviewed, uh, two of them were not on social media and furthermore have absolutely no intention of ever joining anything to do with it. Um, and that included our Walkley, Gold Walkley Award winner, Joanne McCarthy. Um, so I, I think it, it, re, it made me reassess how connected do we need to be. Um, and, and what I found in talking to these journalists was that they were mostly reluctant. There were a few keen. There was one out of the 16 who was very keen and actively <coughs> pursues it. So if we're hanging back and going this is too much for me, um, lots of other people are doing the same. What I did find though was that there came a moment in their career, sometimes a scary moment, where they realised their life depended on being on social media. And for Ben Doherty, was, he was in Thailand on the day the red shirts were, were being shot up by the 
Thai army. Um, they, they had already um, knocked out the radio stations, the television stations and the telephone networks. So the only thing he could be connected with was Twitter. Uh, he had found a particular person to join in with in Twitter in Thailand who was well connected himself and by joining that big hub he was using the live feed of Twitter to find out which way the tanks were going in the city, which way the bullets were flying and he said, Amanda, it saved my life that day. And so it was that encounter with Twitter that made him realise this is where it's at and so he, he then reassessed, well, maybe I do need Twitter. It's kept me alive and it's helped me to report because he actually could not file back to Australia by email or anything else. He, he had to file back by Twitter. That's um, fascinating. And maybe not all of us are going to have that sort of dramatic encounter with why we need social media. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. There are, there are yeah, softer ways of, softer of ways needing of to be intro introduced. Absolutely. Um, I want to change tack slightly because all of our panellists are authors and this is another area that journalists often migrate into, you know, they write books. However, writing a book isn't necessarily, it might be a new career, it might be a new platform, it isn't necessarily uh, financially that um, lucrative. Um, so starting with David, you're the author of six books. Um, you've written your memoir this year but also you've um, you were commissioned to write about Egon Zender, the uh, Zurich-based company. Yeah. Um, so that was a commissioned book. Mm -hmm. um, how do you recommend that journalists look at those options where they sort of write a history of a company as a way to use their skills but for a longer-form project? Well, selfishly, I'd say I, I would like none of you to look, <laughs> look, at, that, look at that territory. Um, but um, obviously, I'm not that... Um, pinched and yes. small-minded. Uh, I was headhunted by a firm of headhunters. Okay. And, I mean, they don't call themselves headhunters, but that's what they do. They find CEOs and CFOs for global companies. And they had their 50th anniversary last year and they wanted a, a journalist, a storyteller, to tell not a business, not a dry business story about their the evolution of their firm from one office in Zurich in 19... 64 to 69 officers around the world today. So they chose me, and I um, and they paid well. Yeah, um, they that's paid a lot better good. than than journalism pays. And uh, and of course, I had all this resistance to it at first. I don't want to write books about corporations. I don't like corporations. I had this kind of inbuilt old-fashioned journalists kind of antipathy for, for business, which is just ridiculous, of course, in retrospect, but because um, this is a highly emotionally intelligent organisation. They right. are the most successful executive search firm in the world, and they are that successful because they attract the best, and they're all multilingual, and, and they all got multiple degrees, and and they know how to connect and they're trusted advisors for, for good reason. So I learnt a lot about it. And yes, I mean, it might be the gift that keeps giving. I'm not sure yet because it opens doors to a whole lot of other companies. So that stands in stark contrast, for example, to the memoir that I wrote, um, which took 10 years to write. Yeah. 
on and off. I mean, it was in the bottom drawer for many years. And it was a story about my father, and then it became a story about journalism, and then it became a story about a publishing father and a son and a whole melange of things. And, you know, to make money out of that is... Um, that's, it almost feels preposterous to even think that you could make money out of that. Um, I don't even know what the sales are like. Um, the advance was tiny. Um, so uh, now I'm working on another uh, on a biography, and the advance and the, this per, the biography is of a person who is um, fairly well known in Australia. But whether that will actually translate into enough to live on is is doubtful. So I'm going to perhaps keep pursuing the sort of corporate biographies as long as the corporation actually is ethically sound. I mean, yeah. I've been looking at companies in India and Indonesia and, you know, the, the level of corruption that exists in those societies is so endemic that you can't possibly do that with hand on heart and say, um, I, told the, I told the true story. Um, and they wouldn't let you. So you're compromised all the time. So... You know, that's, so that's, I think, yeah. a, a fairly long answer to yeah, probably... No, I, think that, you... I think that issue of compromise, I mean, that's something I've had this myself, writing a commissioned history book with a very strong agenda. And as a journalist, I just had to leave my journalist hat at the door and write a story that they wanted me to write and railed against it for most of the time. But the money was much better than, uh, you know... It's a bit of a dilemma. Anyway, Valerie, what about your book, Power Stories? How, how has that changed your career? Because it seems to have really opened up avenues mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. So I started freelancing, at, at, I guess, 15 years ago, and more as a generalist, so I wrote about lots of different things. And then somewhere along the line, I decided to niche a little bit, and I started writing more about business and entrepreneurship and a smattering of technology, just because that was my area of interest, and I really, you know, I found something and I was passionate about, something that I loved. So I wrote about that for seven or eight years. And so I wrote that book kind of to marry my passion for storytelling and my passion for business. So it's called Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. Because over the years, I've interviewed so many people in the world of business. So that book, um, it was published uh, two years ago. Yeah, it was out two years ago. And, you know, while I still get my royalty check every six months, it's not, it's not making me rich by any standard. But what it did, and I, I guess I didn't think about it at the time, but what it did was position me as somebody who was an expert in storytelling in business. And what it then did was opened up lots of speaking opportunities. And that's very lucrative if you can, you know, get the right gigs uh, with the right sort of um, events. And, um, yeah, so one of my key revenue streams at the moment is speaking, so keynote speaking. Specifically about, well, it started off being specifically about storytelling in business, but once you start going on the speaking circuit, they, uh, people, you know, engage you to speak about other things that they know that you can talk about as well. Right, okay. And is that also about trying to build a profile, and is that something that journalists who are trying to break out of the silos need to do? Um, I think the speaking, I think it's, the profile came because I started niching, 
Okay. And I was able to be known for something as opposed to, you know, prior to that, I was interviewing a CEO one day, a rock star one day, you know, doing a travel story one day, doing <laughs> a different kind of piece another day. So once I started niching a little bit, you became known for something. And the other key important part was um, an online presence because then it, you people immediately got what you were about. They didn't have to wait until they saw your byline in a paper. They could see on social media the sorts of things you were interested in. They can see on your blog. I mean, my blog was very, uh, it was very strategic. I don't talk about, you know, what I had for lunch or something. I, I talk about the, my areas of interest, my mm. professional interest. And because of that, people were able to understand the package, I suppose, and that's where the speaking came in, or that's when the, the additional commission, the additional engagements came in, because it was easy for them to understand what they were going to get. Okay, okay. Now, Amanda, you've taken a slightly different tack. You've gone into academia with your PhD. You were already teaching journalism, so maybe uh, before then? No? Um, not very much. Okay. So, so what does the academic path offer journalists, do you think? Well, I, I think it offers quite a lot. There is a new type of research called practice-led research in the creative industries. And what I would call doing journalism, they call creative practice. So this is actually part of my master's degree. It's a creative work and, and therefore, because I, I wrote the book, my thesis only needed to be something like 7,000 words. So if you can crack out an exegesis of 7,000 words, which is just a, a feature or two uh, in length, like, that's too easy. <laughs> um, and, and so what I found was that doing a book was a discipline uh, because it was a surprise. I, I just had... The material, I just happened to give a talk at QUT about my research. Someone said, have a talk to UQ Press, they might like it. So when I went home to Toowoomba, I gave them a call. They said, give us a chapter. I wrote that on the weekend. Come the Monday morning, they said, yes, but we need the manuscript in 10 weeks. I digested that over a cup of tea. And then I thought, well, eight places, 5,000 words a chapter. Um, I might be able to do this. So I said, hold that thought, and by the time the 10 weeks was up, I had written it. So I said, here's your book. And, um, and so that was, it was a, I didn't really have time to think about, oh my goodness, I'm writing a book. It just happened so quickly that I didn't have time to be squeamish about it. I just had to do it. Um, in retrospect, I, I, would, I would be a bit, I would give myself a bit more time because it was a bit crazy. Um, but what it's done for me is to make me see other things that I've done in the past as potential books. So I've now got three or four or five books lined up to be written and various people are asking me to write books. So I, it's expanded the way I used to see uh, stories as a story, a series of stories, a feature, an investigation that might run out. Now I go, it's a book. And so once I, it, it, so it's opened up my frame of reference. So, so that's, that's actually been quite freeing but also challenging in that there are so many books now uh, that, that I can see myself writing probably a book a year just to 
get off my desk what is there and needs to be done. I think that's really, I think that's a really interesting way to look at um, our value because to me journalists have so much value to offer and particularly those journalists and I know some of you are here in the audience, you've been doing your job for 10, 15, 20 years. You have so much value. You are sitting on, you know, a mountain of value. But sometimes you're not, it's, it's about figuring out how to repackage that, isn't it? And I think that idea of a book, if you can pull off a book quickly, it doesn't have to be a great work of art. It's about, you know what I mean, it's not a sort of um, three or four year project. It's something you can do no. quickly. Then you can um, really expand what you do and change you know, just tweak things in your career. Would you agree, Valerie? Is that, yeah, is that absolutely. Something you... Especially if you have been covering, covering a particular area for X number of years, whether that be travel or the arts or business or whatever it is, you have a wealth and depth of knowledge that often people in the industry have, don't even have. Mm. Because they, they, they may be new to the industry, but you've actually covered it for X number of years. And also, I think it's important to, to realise that you don't have to be in-house or on a beat. You know, I, I wasn't um, employed as a, as a staff member by Fairfax. I was always a contributor. And, um, and, and the way the speaking actually started was because people, um, Fairfax actually, as a, with me as a contributor, got me just to emcee a couple of things. And then I realised, oh, this is an interesting gig. And I started emceeing things externally and that moved into speaking. But people, um, engaged me because of my depth of experience in that field. Mm -hmm. And people recognise that. When I was, in, one of the book ideas, for example, was told to me by these reporters that I was interviewing for my PhD research, various, so I was, as I was asking them, asking them questions, I was also feeding back to them some of the information from the other reporters that I'd already interviewed to, to try to draw out ideas from them. And as I started to do that, a few of them said, you've got to write a book because this is what's happening in the network society is that we are each self-teaching. We're self-learning what we need to know, but we're not easily sharing what other people are doing. So with these high-end investigative journalists, each one of them has very particular needs and very particular stories and ways of doing that and they're self-teaching because no one, there's no one to teach them. So that's why when someone says to me, that's a book, I go, oh yes, it is a thesis, but it is also a book. It needs to be turned out quite quickly because everything's changing so quickly. Mm. David, do you but, want to come well, in I'm on just, that? I'm, well, I'm wondering about that as you speak. I mean, it sounds great, but writing a book is, is a very, very, challenging thing and to do it well. And I'm not talking about the memoir that took me 10 years. I'm just talking about even the Egon Zender book that took me 18 months. It was massive research. Mm. And to do it well, to make it readable, to turn it into a, make it a page turner, and to do justice to the intellectual capital of the organisation and what have you, and then, then for it to sell and for you to make money from, and this was a custom book. It's now being turned into a trade book. But the business model for publishing world has been blown to smithereens as well. So we're not just talking about our industry as journalists. I mean, there are myriad industries that, are, that have been um, kind of cannibalised and, um, 
and challenged like they've never been challenged before. So I think that this term monetize, mm. which I hate, mm. um, <laughs> you know, how do you, and I always say it with an American accent for some reason, so it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds even, you know, how are you going to monetize your craft, you know? And uh, this was the whole challenge with social media. You know, my first social media instructor was saying, well, you know, you've got a blog, you've got a tweet, you've got a Facebook, and... But I said, but how, how is this going to translate into actually making a living? And he said, well, you know, you've just got to, you know... Actually, he didn't have an American accent, so that's not fair. But you know, I love just the fact he was an instructor. You had an instructor. I had an I instructor. Want one. Well, I want one. But it didn't help, because he, he came to my house and he... Young guy and very hip and he had, you know, the laptop and the iPad and a couple... I mean, he was just absolutely um, strapped with um, technology and he started telling me about why I should be when and why and where I should be tweeting and first thing in the morning when I go and get a coffee, I should be tweeting. And I said, but how... But what? First of all, what am I going to say? He said, well, just say, you know, you've got thoughts, you've got thoughts, just, <laughs> just express your thoughts and... Um, so that turned me off tweeting and, um, <laughs> but my, but the thing was, I said to him, but so how does this actually, because for me as a feature writer and as an author, I need time to think, I need to push away the white noise and I need to actually turn it all off so that I actually drill down. I mean, that's what we, that's what we used to be paid to do. Yes. The business model supported journalists spending three, four, five, six weeks, sometimes longer on a story because it was important to the contract of the fourth estate's role in society. And, of course, we know why that business model survived because it was advertising that supported it. So I feel a little bit like, you know, I'm sitting in a tub of aspic, you know, sort of just um, lamenting, you know, the sort of... The, you know, the, yeah. the ancient regime that has passed. Um, but I still think there's a place for, for deep thinking and mm. contemplation and turning off all the stuff that is around us to understand whatever it is we're writing about. Mm. And, I, and that's what I need to do in order to do... You know, and I'm still diversifying my portfolio... Good. So you, do you consider... Do you, this is a question we're going to come on to, um, having a portfolio career. So, so how are you diversifying? Well, I've, I've you know... It's, it's certainly not I, by your blog, is it? It's not the blog. Is, I mean, it's I, the blog I'm, I just I, checked. But I'm, it was there's last nothing updated on the blog. in 2012. 2012. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, David, I interrupted no, you. No, but I'm in, I've been doing a doctorate um, on creative non-fiction and... Okay. Uh, I have been writing a memoir, I've been writing a corporate book, I've done a documentary, um, my first documentary, which was on Paul Kelly, the singer-songwriter. Um, and um, I've been writing speeches and I've been mentoring other writers. Mm. Is that diversified enough? I think... Yeah. Mm. Would people say that's diversified? <laughs> yeah, I but think so. But I still, you know, still working out how to monetize it all. Okay. So, That's uh, the challenge. Valerie, um, you've seen hundreds and hundreds of students go through the doors of the Australian Writers' Centre. And I know you've been asked this before. You're still getting students, but are there jobs for them? 
How are they monetizing what they're <laughs> learning? I think one of I think the timing of all of these students coming through and the current landscape is actually perfect timing because of, and there's probably going to be another session later today, because of branded journalism, which I'm sure someone like um, David and probably Amanda <laughs> probably hates the concept of. But um, uh, the content marketing and branded journalism is definitely here to stay. Essentially what you did for the executive recruitment firm initially started off in their minds as a, as a um, as a branded journalism concept. It's turned into something much more because of your calibre. However, Procter & Gamble or AMP or, you know, um, American Express, ANZ, Telstra, they've all got branded journalism sites and essentially they are, they are becoming publishers themselves. So they need content for that. Um, the Telstra site pays higher than you get paid as a regular journalist from the mainstream publications. So there's there's a lot more, there are a lot more publishers out there mm. these days. They're just not your, your, the traditional journalism kind of publishers. Corporations are simply putting out their own content and somebody obviously needs to write it. Right, okay. And how do you break into that? I mean, is it a question of just seeing what Telstra published and contacting the HR department or? I think it's important to start off in traditional journalism and okay. obviously make sure you have your contacts and your skills and all that kind of stuff because often people in traditional journalism go become the editors of those places. Okay. And so if you've established your contacts in the first place, that's particularly useful. But also, um, uh, it, you do need that journalism background. I don't think you can go straight into content marketing and branded journalism, I think you do need that training before you get into it, if you want to do it well, that is. Okay. But also on that point of what you were saying earlier about the portfolio career mm. and doing lots of different things, which I think is wonderful as a freelancer, you do have an opportunity to do all of the different things like what um, David and Amanda do. Um, you know, and I do speaking and I do teaching and I do writing and I do books and I do whatever. But I don't actually think, differentiate those levels of the portfolio, um, to your point about monetizing, I kind of have a mindset of these are my, these are the things I do for, because I love them and for creative reasons. And I divide my time in, you know, this chunk of time, I'm going to pay off this massive chunk of my mortgage. And I have that mindset of that's what I'm going to focus on. And those are the jobs I'm going to work on that particular three months or whatever. And then these six months, I'm going to do all the things that I love. So mm -hmm. I portfolio it in that kind of sense, because I think as a freelancer, I really encourage you to think of, um, not to think of, oh, I hope I make as much as I would in a full-time job. I hope you think of it as this, the sky is the limit and I can potentially make much more than I ever could when I have a salary ceiling because that is absolutely possible. Now, we're, um, this, this year's Storyology, we're sort of under the cloud of the ABC cuts. Last year, um, it was straight after the Fairfax and um, Murdoch cuts and um, I do often hear journalists saying, I'm going to leave the industry, you know, I'm feeling so depressed, um, there's nothing for me. What do you all say to them? Amanda. Um, just go. Just go. Just go. <laughs> what, just leave or just, just leave? Just leave? Just, well, it, <laughs> no, if, you, if they've told you you have to go, uh, okay. I don't... 
I, I think then this is your opportunity really to follow your passion, whatever that is. Okay. And just, just go for it. Go for it. Mm. David? I don't know. I mean, it's, you've got to really want it. You've got to really, really want it. And um, I mean, I've just done a session in, at the Ubud Writers Festival recently with this young um, Al Jazeera journalist talking about being a, um, a war correspondent. And, um, you know, he's asked me, would you, you know, I used to be a Middle East correspondent. Would you go into that region now? Now, so it depends what you want to do with journalism. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways of being a journalist, you know. And, but in this particular case, he said to me, would you, as an older journalist, go, advise someone like me, who's 27, to go? And I said, not on your life would I. You know, I mean, journalism, journalism is now the front line. Yeah. And, and they are, as we know, beheading journalists and aid workers and all the rest of it. So I said, just, you know, you, you seem like a nice guy. Stay well away from Syria and Iraq. Um, but I think it's just, it's, it comes back to my first point. I think it's about the heart. Mm. What, what do you feel passionate about? If you really want to tell stories, uh, if you really want to follow a rock band around the world like you know, the young Rolling Stone journalist in Almost Famous, do it, do it. Um, if you really want to work out what is going on in the Lebanese community in Sydney, hang out in Lakemba. Um, I mean, become an expert and fill yourself with the story so that, you know, yeah. Mm. That, that's what I'm actually finding with the students I teach at QUT in news writing and feature writing. One's a first year subject, one's a second year subject. They are coming in already knowing and already, in some cases, doing what they want to do. One wants to be a fashion writer. She's already reporting Brisbane Fashion Week. One wants to focus on the Formula One in Singapore. And she is just going to write about Formula One in Singapore. So every story is about Formula One in Singapore. So these, these students are, are already skilling up for the particular niche that they want to specialise in. So specialisation really is a key. Yeah. And, and that can also lead to stories that you might not expect. So coverage that I'd done um, led to, some, to a contact from England emailing me in Australia. And that's a fairly unusual thing to happen. Um, but that then led to a story which broke front page of the London Times. And that has led to the reformation of the Anglican, of the Church of England in England. So there, the paradigm shift is there when a journalist in Toowoomba can can make a front page national story in Britain and and shake their institutions. So I, I think that's why I'm saying if there's something that really makes you go, go for it. You don't know where that might lead. Um, but certainly exciting, hanging on for the ride. Mm. So, Valerie, um, what would you say? And I just want to say to the audience that we're going to open up to questions. We do have a mic. Do we? Yeah. 
Um, so just start thinking about what you'd like to ask our panel. Just We'll just go to Valerie for what you would say to those journalists. I agree um, with Amanda and David in just go for it, as in go. this is a wonderful opportunity to go and do the things that you love. I would temper that by saying that you can do the things you love and go hang out at the Formula One or in Lakemba or whatever, but you also need to eat and pay your mortgage or the rent. So I think it makes sense to it's what I said earlier, um, have a chunk of time, a focused time where you're, you're you know, um, accumulating your war chest, you're doing stuff that pays well and ha have the chunk of time that you're doing stuff that you love so that you can balance the two. And you'll be really surprised, some of the most fun stuff I've done has been the stuff that pays really well because I've, I've gone into it with an open mind. I think, you know, you're, the book that you wrote, you right. th weren't sure at first but it sounds like you had a really good experience in the end and got paid well. So it's not like you have to s sell your soul or do something you hate. You know, try and find something that pays well and something that you might enjoy as well and will open you to new skills and, and, and new networks as well. Mm, thank you. So I think we've got a question here. So just say who you want it to be directed to and questions, please, not statements. Um, I'm Linda Vignani. I'm a freelance journalist and have been for decades. And I started off in newsrooms in South Africa and apartheid South Africa. I'm very interested in the divide between the ethics of journalism and the more commercial work. Now, Valerie says, do your three-month stint of high-earning work. Um, David has talked about how he wrote a book for a corporation. I know that the ed I've worked as a foreign correspondent in South Africa, and the American editor I worked for, had I done anything commercial like that, would have actually dropped me like a hot cake. They had a complete divide between journalism, where you were supposed to be completely independent, not being bought by anybody, and in effect, promoting companies, promoting particular interests. So how do you actually Can I address, address that head on? I mean, the fact that I have done a book on an executive search firm, I am much more attractive to, I mean, I have a good relationship with Ben Napastek at Good Weekend and I still do pieces for him. The fact that I understand the business world and leadership in a way that I never did before actually adds value to my place, in this case, in Good Weekend. Um, and so I don't, I mean, that, it sounds like the, um, the editor you're talking about in South Africa. That is an American editor. Well, he's an American. Okay, well, he's, it's a little, sounds a little hidebound to me and old fashioned. Okay, hold on, we're, going, we're going up here first for the next question. Yep. Um, my name's Tim Richards. I'm a freelance travel writer in Melbourne. Uh, I just wanted to, in a way, it's a, a quick rebuttal on a question. Um, that With Twitter, I have found, and social media, I found it extraordinary value in my work, and I do get monetary value out of it, I think. Um, so I think it can work. It depends who you are, how you freelance, what you do. Um, but I found over the years it really has raised my, I hate to use the word brand, mm -hmm. persona, uh, so that editors that are not in the same city with me, who don't know me, they see me, they interact with me. I'm talking to editors online. I'm talking to colleagues as well. And I've actually had work commissioned, believe it or not, through direct messages on Twitter. Someone saw I was in Fiji, you know, posting photos. So can you write me three, three stories about Fiji, 500 words each, that blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's, um, I think it does have the ability to, because you're a freelancer, you can be out of sight, out of mind. I think it can give you a presence, um, a sort of, that the editors notice and other colleagues notice, and I find that's quite valuable. Um, so I, I guess 
all these avenues are different. Facebook, I don't think, is as useful for this kind of thing. But um, so, sorry, that wasn't really a question. That was a statement. But I just wanted to check that in as well. But I think there's a important point to make here, and that is that, you know, if you, I mean, I've been a journalist for 35 years, and I have developed relationships with most of the magazine editors and newspaper editors in this country. If I, if I was starting off today, there's no way in the world I would discount social media. I mean, you'd be a fool to discount social media. But, you know, and I'm, it's going to sound grandiose, but, I mean, you two, the Rolling Stones, don't use Facebook. They don't need to use Facebook because they're established rock bands. But if you're an up-and-coming musician and you're trying to get traction, of course you're going to use um, social media. And what I mean is I'm not the U2 of journalism <laughs> by any means, but I've been doing it for 35 years, a bit like you too. So perhaps that's a differentiation that, that should be made. Um, I think also just on what Tim said is that, you know, I mean, being a travel writer myself, I know that the online sphere for travel writers is incredibly supportive. The community of travel writers online are incredibly supportive. So I think it also depends in which area you're in. And certainly among book writers, um, there's a really supportive network where everyone's cross-posting and retweeting and stuff. So I think, yeah, I think it also depends on the area. And that travel writing seems to be particularly nice in the virtual world. Yeah. Also talking right. Uh, exactly. Three going on, editors, colleagues. Yeah, and then punters, yeah. yeah. It, it also, tweeting can also work with breaking news. As this uh, big story in England was breaking, I was tweeting some things from there and I got from that, I was commissioned by other newspapers uh, to write follow-up stories. Yeah. And also, just on that point with Twitter, another um, way to monetize is... Um, <laughs> is um, uh, for example, I've just, I mean, I've only just signed the contract, so I'm not sure if I can say the name, but one of the world's largest um, technology firms um, has just contracted me to appear on a variety of sort of like television things um, because of my depth of experience. But they unashamedly say it's also because of your social media following, because they hope that I'll tweet some behind the scenes things or they hope that I'll tweet the show when it's on. So, and they make no bones about it. They're not commissioning me as a journalist to write stuff. They're commissioning me, you know, because I've built a particular platform that they want. Mm. Okay, sorry, we've just got to go to the next question. Uh, Robin Short, freelance. Can you hear me? Yes. You can? Yep. Freelance business and lifestyle journalists, uh, some, sometimes with Fairfax, have been. And in terms of David's writing a corporate novel, novel? Well, no, non-fiction, non to what extent when you made your comments about writing subsequently or prior to the, for the good weekend, does that, do I pick up from what you say that you kept your sense of integrity and argued with the company if they wanted to say anything that you didn't agree with? Yes, I did, but the, but the, con the nature of the contract, I think Claire might have alluded to this before, but the nature of the contract was different. I didn't come in as, a, as an outsider. Um, I was an invited person. Into, I was invited into the organisation to look at it from the inside out. And I was being paid to do so. So I think if, if you come in on that basis and then think that you can start telling stories that they don't want to be told, 
then that's, I think that's ethically unsound. And so I came in as a writer, not as a reporter. And the fact that the organisation has an extraordinary integrity, of course there are, there are things that the, the company didn't want told. And I had many arguments with them about how much of this can be told or not. So you were able to keep your integrity in writing the book and be diplomatic about any of the glitches? Well, I, 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 feel, I feel I did. But then there, would, there, there might be, when the book comes out as a trade book, there might be uh, clients of Egon Zenders all over the world who said, well, I didn't have that experience. The, the book that's been told is a very glossy kind of version of, very feel-good version of, of what this firm is about. My experience of this firm was something other than that. But hey, this is a company that does not talk about its clients. So the fact that they are advisors to some of the most prominent and powerful companies in the world, they don't mention them. If the, if the client wants to mention Egon Zender, then they can, but that was not the purpose of what I was doing. So it's actually, they, they came to me because I can tell stories, because I know how to write, and they felt that they could trust me to tell a story where I didn't abandon, I didn't suddenly become just, um, you know, sort of morally empty or something, but I was telling a story on behalf of them and they were paying me to do it. So it's a different kind of writing brief. Okay, I'm going to move on just for the next Hi. question. Claire Stewart. Um, bits of freelancer. So I've just been overseas in conflict zones doing what you suggest we don't do. Um, but back here doing a little bit with the ABC. I'm intrigued. There's this idea of platform silos, but also what I see is regional silos. So what would be your tips for young players for breaking out into this global audience that you mentioned earlier and how to access editors over there is it just purely being around for 30 years and people getting to know you, or are there tips to get in? Let's go Amanda and then maybe Valerie. I think it's a matter of how we conceive of the, of the world now is, is really hyper-connected. And, and it's, ab it's just as easy for me to talk to someone on Facebook who is around the corner or on the other side of the world. It, it doesn't cost anything anymore. We don't have to pay for phone calls. And, and so by using, uh, using Skype, but not just to talk, by using Skype to send messages, um, and send files, send photos, um, understand more of the functionality of Skype, it's a, such a powerful tool. When I was speaking to the... Two minutes. Right. When I was interviewing the, the journalists... Um, they were saying those who do work overseas and who work from here and write about overseas, Skype is an, is a, sounds like a very simple tool, but absolutely vital um, to be able to have a chat with people. And most people are on it. So they talk about the thickening of, of the network. So many people are on Skype now that, um, that you can find them easily. So if, I'm going to just 
interrupt yeah. you there. Just a, one last comment from Valerie, just because we've got to wrap up. If you want to access um, editors globally, is that the question? It all boils down to your pitch. So you've got to write a killer pitch that they're going to be interested in. It's not just a matter of you know introducing yourself or anything. They're going to judge you on the basis of your pitch either way. I would probably then not put your Australian phone number, but just leave it as your email address in, in your first contact with them. But you impress them with your pitch because these days so many pitches are by email anyway. They're not by phone in the initial stages. And then, as Amanda said, it's so easy then to file, to be connected, to then talk for free. I mean, I used to have to call people in the middle of the night and it used to cost me a fortune, but you don't have to do that these days. So thank you to your, our wonderful audience and please join me in thanking our illustrious panellists.